loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today is a special day on Good, Good Grief. Exactly six years ago today, I shared my own story for the first ever Good Grief episode. Later this year, I'll devote an hour to all the incredible experiences I've had as a host of the show. But for now, I just want to say that hosting this show has been one of the great privileges of my life. I've had the honor to share the stories of over 300 people whose deep losses and grief had led to something unexpectedly beautiful. I truly believe that given a willingness to go through our grief rather than avoid it, we're often able not to move on, severing the past, but to move forward honoring it. I plan to continue to bring these conversations to you, my wonderful, wonderful listeners, and I know that the inspiration my guests offer is something we all need in a world full of loss and suffering. I'm honored that over 300,000 of you access the show each year, with that number continuing to grow, thanks to all of you, including over half my audience who listen from outside the U.S., Grief is truly something we can talk about across borders and beyond differences because loss is an integral part of the human experience. So I just continue to be grateful for the honor of bringing you the conversations. And if you've just found the show, all of those previous episodes are still available at the Good Grief Voice America page and wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm welcoming back Dr. Shakti Butler, who's so appropriate on this anniversary day since she joined me just four months after the first Good Grief episode. We talked then about her film, Cracking the Code, which is wonderful. Look that up. Shakti Butler's a visionary filmmaker, transformative learning educator, wife, mother, grandmother, and friend to many, and president and founder of World Trust Educational Services, Inc., a nonprofit transformative educational organization. Rooted in love and justice, World, World Trust produces films, curricula, workshops, and programs that are cat- catalysts for institutional, structural, and cultural change. Shakti is an inspirational speaker, facilitator, trainer, and lecturer who's sought after by schools, universities, public and private organizations, and faith-based institutions. She's produced five documentaries. The first four form the core of World Trust teaching tools and have experienced increased exposure, over 30 million views for one clip alone, generating national dialogue and critical thinking that's impacting institutions and communities across the country. These are The Way Home, Mirrors of Privilege Making Whiteness Visible, Light in the Shadows, and Cracking the Codes, the System of Racial Inequality, Inequity. Excuse me. In 2017, Shakti premiered Healing Justice, which we'll mostly be talking about today, intended to popularize a national conversation about justice, healing, and the youth-to-prison pipeline. 
Dr. Butler also served as diversity consultant and advisor on the Oscar-winning Disney animated film Zootopia, which focuses on challenging bias and systemic inequity. Shakti's work incorporates whole body learning through stories, art, movement, and dialogue. Welcome, Shakti. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad to have you back and to talk about this um, really, uh, uh, you know, uh, moving film, but that's not quite enough to say. Um, I, I saw it several days ago, and it has just been drifting in my mind ever since certain pieces will come up when I'm driving around or, you know, um, <laughs> it's, it's continued to have quite an impact on me. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it with you. Wow. You, uh, it's my pleasure to talk to you about this. I guess the place I want to start is to, uh, you know, in the very first, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe of the film, um, you talked about loss as a as such a huge part of intergenerational trauma, and I uh-huh. I think probably that's a new idea to some of my listeners. It's something I've thought about before, but I wonder if you could just um, fill that out for people how uh-huh. how the way that race has operated in our in our world here has led to so much loss and trauma. Uh-huh. Um, that is, um, it seems like a simple question in some ways, but it's really very complex. So I'm going to actually work my way back into your question of, of explaining what intergenerational trauma is. Um, most people are well aware of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And um, usually we connect that to people who've been at war or had some kind of, you know, long-term trauma as a result of some engagement that they've had to have with people, not just as individuals, but as groups of people. And um, there's a term called post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is very similar. In fact, it is a form of post-traumatic stress, but it's taking what happens in a war and instead looking at the system of enslavement in this country over hundreds of years and the coping mechanisms that people uh, find themselves using as a result of trauma, severe trauma, um, it really plays out in a lot of the challenges that we see in um, communities where there has been a denial of access to what I would call belonging. So mm-hmm. access to good education, access to good health care, lack of access to um, education, health care, um, jobs, um, going to college, for example, graduating even from high school, that there are disparities that exist within communities of color and among people who are poor that uh, predispose them to this form of post-traumatic stress. But, of course, we're focusing on post-traumatic slave syndrome or what has happened to people of color, black people, brown people, red people, um, and people who came to build railroads and do things like that. Uh, where you really find yourself not belonging inside the culture of a society. Mm-hmm. That trauma passes down generationally. Um, it is a form of what people refer to when they think about epigenetics, which is how you cellularly take on some of the things that have happened to people generations before you. 
and it shows up in um, how we try to live in the world. And this trauma is very, very deep. Of course, anyone who thinks psychologically, I'm a therapist, so I think pretty psychologically (laughs) compared to Uh some people. Um, This is not hard to understand because because, uh, without interruption, uh, the way that people's relationships get disturbed or severed or or, um, um, kind of affected, then uh, it directly impacts not only their DNA, they've just proven that, but also the way that they then relate to the next generation, assuming they even have yeah. that, that opportunity. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it's not a hard concept to follow in that way, you know, um, but people do not think about it, I find. Um, many people mm-hmm. do not think about how the current system comes to be. And it just seems so vital that people have that understanding. Right. And often we look at the current system and where do we start that time clock? Um, I like to go back to the Middle Ages when um, there was where horror was, was a part of daily life in terms of public torture and religious persecution and the kinds of things that drove people um, from where they were living in, in Europe to what we now call the United States. And how the whole idea, for example, as um, looking at people who are commit a crime, quote unquote, um, the system of punishment is not something that's new. It comes from hundreds of years of uh, the way that people have been treated when they have done something that doesn't is not in alignment with the society in which they live. And of course, later on this hour, we'll talk about some alternatives to that, which uh, mm-hmm. it, for me feel like water in the desert. But um, let's let's stay a little more with the consequences of of um, you know this this post traumatic slave syndrome. And um, I know a lot of Native people. Of course, kids were stolen from those families. They didn't even get to grow up with their, you know, um, there, we could go specifically into each community that way. And your film does do that, um, which I appreciated. But then the outgrowth, um, you know, one thing that I've thought about a lot that you highlighted is the loss, um, the weight of loss on young people in uh, where you and I live, Oakland, for one, you know, many, um, communities of color by and large, uh, five-year-olds who've had, you know, numerous family members die. And so then that's a perpetuation, would you say? Oh, absolutely. That, that and pattern. I have to apologize to you because I actually lost my connection with you for a minute. And so oh, I no problem. the beginning of what you said from the last thing that we were talking about. So if, can you restate your question for me? I absolutely can. I was I was just saying that um, that of course there are some different ways to think about justice um, that are like water in the desert for me. <laughs> you know, when I hear about these uh-huh. alternatives, and we'll talk about those later. But uh, I want to dive still a little more into the current consequences. Um, one thing that has stayed with me over the past several days since I th- saw the film is. Um, 
not a new idea to me, but the the fact that most kids in um, in in communities of color uh, have experienced a lot of li- loss, current loss, uh, mm-hmm. and and that I I'm aware there is not much resource that really addresses that. So then that continues the whole pattern. Yes. Yeah, Five-year-olds that's true. Had- <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, I would say when we say most kids of color, I think it's the kids of color who end up in the system come from usually very, um, very specific zip codes. And those are zip codes where there's a lot of poverty and a lack of access to um, some of the benefits of growing up where poverty is not a part of your lived experience. And so you have, you know, access to, you know, uh, not being in a food desert, you have access to, you know, clothing and housing and the things that children need to feel safe. So it's not all children of color, of course. Yeah, um, I miss I misspoke is, the the second time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, okay. that's fine. <laughs> it is those young people who find themselves where they are not valued, um, and what I mean not valued is they don't receive um, either uh, care. Uh, whether it's at home or in school, or it's impossible for them to receive what they need in order to thrive and to know how wonderful they are, all the way into how culturally they are received um, in the classroom by teachers who mean well, and of course there are teachers who do fantastic work, but oftentimes being an ex-teacher myself, there's not an understanding of the cultural needs of the child and how education needs to be relevant in terms of the culture that they live in. So every area that you look at that, that allows children to grow and thrive, there is less of that. And then there's the trauma on top of that that really gets in the way of uh, children being able to, um, to, to grow up and feel like they belong inside of the community in which they live. It's, 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 a, it's a difficult kind of situation. And so this historical rape and genocide and the policies and the laws and the customs that have created this inequity um, and the coping mechanisms that accompany that um, perpetuate um, systemically and structurally the situations that we find ourselves in in terms of creating this youth-to-prison pipeline. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, I had never heard the phrase lateral violence, and it seemed mm-hmm. like such an important phrase for uh, to, to get out there so that people can have a deeper understanding of, of kind of um, violence in communities that have been so hard hit with what you're talking about. Can you share a bit about mm-hmm. that? Um, I, I think a, a good way to say it so that everybody can understand is that, you know, if you have a family and you have a hard day or a hard few days or a hard few weeks at work or somewhere else, usually the people who receive the brunt of that are the people who are closest to you. That's where you can be your more authentic self of being frustrated about what's happening in your lives and you take it out on people around you. And so lateral violence is simply that. It's like when you are in a pressure cooker and everyone around you in a particular zip code is struggling in order to just live, they will take it out on each other because there's, there's, 
that's the easiest place to go to in order to vent your frustrations and your anger and your fears. And that that anyone who's in a family shouldn't have trouble understanding that that's the truth. You know, if you just have <laughs> a right. simple bad day, it's likely to come home with you. And, um, and of course, um, being the privileged person I, I am, I'm very aware of, of certain things I don't get exposed to too much, except, uh, uh, referentially, like when I'm in the car with my wife, who's Hispanic, um, we get pulled over more. When they mm-hmm. see me, they let us go. You know, <laughs> just those right. those things that are so obvious when you're um, observe when you're next to it. Even for me, you know, hard to mm-hmm. hard to not see. Um, and so there's right. that weight too. That the way the world uh, relates to you. Uh, doesn't refer to you at all. Correct. Correct. You also talked quite a bit in the film about uh, seeing it through the lens of um, broken relationship, that what all that does is interrupt relationship. I thought that was a a very um, crucial uh, aspect because, of course, relationships are what support us with hard things. And yet... Yes these factors interrupt that support sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be loved. Um, and when that is not a part of your daily experience in terms of the, the you know, the, the places that you spend most of your time, whether it's at home or in school or, you know, your, your environment, so to speak, you will gravitate towards people who will accept you in some way and make you feel better about yourself. And so people are looking for relationships, but oftentimes those relationships can actually do damage as well. And, um, you know, we think about women, for example, or men who are in abusive relationships. You know, after a while, it begins to erode who you believe you are and you accept um, the life that you're in because you really don't see any other action, options and you get worn down. Um, this mm-hmm. is true for children as well. Children mm-hmm. who have an amazing capacity for rebounding and for healing, if they are not treated well over a, a long period of time, it's going to wear on who they are. And, and then we talk about, well, why do people join gangs? They join gangs because they need a sense of family. And as some people might have perceptions about how um, how terrible that is, but no, not really. If you understand that the driving need is to find a place where you'll be accepted, then that's where you're going to go. If there's nowhere else that you can go, absolutely. So all of that leads in the direction of of um, you know this this pipeline to interaction with the the criminal injustice system. And when we come back from our break here, mm-hmm. uh, I. I'd like to talk about what then happens uh, to people who end up in that system. And uh, listeners, in the meantime, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And uh, there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. To find Dr. Shakti Butler and World Trust, go to www.world-trust.org. Be back soon. 
you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 what sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private tv channel we support multiple media formats so all of your video content can be in one place we offer a number of advertising and video packages for more information visit voiceamerica.tv if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us surprise you Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress, anxiety, and relationships. Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel airs live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America health and wellness are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle it's not just related to your physical well-being it also means a healthier mind confidence improved health stamina and fitness talking with tremaine brings it all to you host tremaine ellis along with her husband and co-host david ellis will offer support advice guidance and motivation to keep you in your best shape both physically and mentally talking with tremaine can be heard live every wednesday at 6 p.m eastern time and 3 pacific on the voice america health and wellness channel Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Shock. Shakti Butler about her film Healing Justice and um, Shakti before the break I was uh, uh, saying that I'd like to really talk about this um, what you feature so much in the film the pipeline this the system that ends up um, shoving people into a pipeline that is so hard to get out of can you um, just share with people your um, viewpoint on that? Yes, surely. 
I think um, oftentimes when we're looking at this very complex uh, situation called <clears throat> the prison system and particularly the prison pipeline, there are two things that we ignore. Well, there are many things that we ignore or we're not at all familiar with. One of them is are the economics of the pipeline. Um, there are people who make a tremendous amount of money in the prison system and we understand that systems of inequity are basically driven by um, power and economics. And so there is an economic incentive that's very strong to continue to be a country where we have a, a very high number of people who are incarcerated, more so, more so than any other country in, in the world. Um, the other thing is that when we understand um, the prison pipeline, we have to look at the policies the laws and the customs that actually reinforce the lack of access that, or capacity for access to live in a civilization where you can find that you, you do belong, that your voice does matter, that you can have a say-so in how your communities are being organized and what you have access to. So when there's tremendous deprivation and when that trauma has existed for hundreds of years, it's very difficult to break certain cycles, but they are exacerbated for, let's say, the school system. Um, I talked about this briefly a moment ago, but the school system, um, I, I want to share with you via a very, very short story by a friend of mine who um, works in the school system in the state of Washington. And her first week on the job, there was a little boy who, um, in kindergarten, uh, five years old, did not speak English, who was having a meltdown. And he was having a meltdown because, uh, I'm not sure what, he missed his mother, whatever the case might be, he couldn't communicate well. And the solution to that was to take him, remove him from the class, and place him in another room by himself. Mm where he sat and he cried for a long mm. time. And um, the, the thought of the principal was that he was a danger to the other students and maybe to himself. And so he needed to be put into what I would refer to as isolation. This is not a rare thing. So you look at the policies that are created around how children are supposed to behave and what psychology tells us in terms of bias and um, uh, both conscious and unconscious bias and how the behavior of certain children and the darker you are, the worse it can be, um, are really considered a problem. They're problems the minute they walk into a room and they're treating accordingly. But of course, you can look at the symbology of him being moved into isolation and saying, this is the beginning of a setup that if it's not interrupted, if nobody's finding out what's wrong, why is he crying, why is he upset, what does he need, and following through with that, he will continue to find himself in trouble. That trouble will make him angry, and that anger and that fear will just grow until he finds himself in being suspended from school. And then once he's suspended from school, of course, the next step is to be expelled from school. And, and it goes on and on. And, and this is um, a, a part of the understanding that needs to be had about how society functions. And certain young people in our society are really not valued. 
you know, that brings up something I heard about a long time ago. I wish I knew where this is true, but uh, somewhere it's true that when someone in um, this particular uh, village, small place to live, um, does something, you know, robs someone, hurts someone, whatever it might be, um, they're put in the circle and told why they are valued, what's important about them being part of the community. Such mm-hmm. a dramatically <laughs> different approach, you know, where people are pulled in and, and um, reinforced in their importance to all the other people. Uh, so radically yeah. different from what you're describing and what, what is true about you know the prison system mm-hmm. and of course uh, I think you're justice. referring to oh yeah, sorry about that um, I think you're referring to um, in a, a rather indigenous way of being that's not only here in uh, North America but also where there are indigenous people in other parts of the world that's a focus on what it means to um, address places where harm is being caused is to help people understand how valuable they are and why they belong and at the same time hold them accountable for what they've done, which is not our definition of justice. Our definition of justice is about punishment. And that punishment, again, goes back generations and generations. But punishment is about social control and power. It is not about healing. You know, I, I was mentioning to you before we went on there, on on air that um, my choir, Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, sings in in several prisons in the Bay Area, and one of them we we walk by um, a, a number of cells to get to where we sing, uh, and there are maybe ten people in a maybe twelve by twelve space. Uh, and that's where they live. And I'm always thinking, so we're taking, we have probably 10 traumatized people, very likely, put in a situation like that, they're going to shut down more. It's kind of predictable, I would think. Um, And that's the example that pops to my head when I'm listening to you, you know, that how how do they break break that cycle, it's very hard to do without support and care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. It's, um, I think we keep reinforcing what creates the problems in the first place. And I'm not saying that people aren't harmed, but, you know, one of the sayings, of course, is that harm people or hurt people hurt people. But heal people also heal people. And so we have to find a way to Um, address the policies and laws and the customs and access to what allows someone to live their best lives and to make that something that is much more widespread than it is now. It's called creating more equity. And um, the younger we start with children, uh, the better. And so how might that look starting with, with children? From, from your view, what's the most effective way for that to happen? Well, that's a very, very complicated question. It I'm depends sure. upon um, <laughs> whether we'll you're get just barely your... started, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you, if we're talking about you know family care, 
then um, the parents need something. I, I spent years working in a drug rehabilitation center. Uh, I grew up in Harlem, and I did a lot of work in Harlem and a lot of organizing work um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And what I found was that um, I directed a drug rehab program for women, was that the women who I actually worked with were some of the brightest, most talented, creative people that I had ever met. And their habits of dealing with the pain um, that they suffered uh, were, were caused a lot of self-harm. So whether it was, you know, any kind of addiction or um, self-abuse or the kinds of relationships that they found themselves in um, and their inability to understand, you know, or have reflected back to them their own innate greatness plays out with how, what can they give to their children? You know, mm-hmm. it's not that people don't love their children, but sometimes the need to survive is going to overshadow what it is that you can offer to your child. We come in and we see that there's something wrong with those people, that they're not treating their children well. Um, so looking just at that home environment, what does that mean? We don't take a step back and look at how they got to be that way in the first place. And what are some of the measures that can be taken to help people address what they need in order to function well? And we don't really look at how those problems have come to be. So we're never really dealing with the root of the problem. We're looking at those bad people, but the people who create the the system that we all live in, who continue to create the system, continue to see um, black people and brown people and red people and Southeast Asian people, for example, as deficit in some way, um, then we are also part of the problem. So I think there's a shared responsibility here that's required for people to be more conscious of our own biases and how we see them. And if we're in the place where we're actually creating rules and regulations that we have a sphere of influence, then we have to look at how we can make that more humane. Um, That's a very broad blanket statement, given the question that you asked. I I can see examples... um... Uh, for instance, uh, one of my kids was in a, a private school for a while. Uh, we actually had to take her out <laughs> because there was a very uh, punitive approach when a kid was um, acting out in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. That wasn't what they said they were going to do, but it was what they did. And so they would isolate a kid or they, you know, and, and, what happened then would be that the kid that was acting out would be scared and angry and act out more. And um, it just was not a tolerable environment, (laughs) you know, for, for us. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a, that's a sort of in my own life example of how that might work. That if we're not looking Mm -hmm. at what each child needs, Mm -hmm. including the quote unquote bully and, you know, (laughs) including all of them, then um, it perpetuates the whole, the whole notion that punishment right. is going to right. go, yeah? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that I want to say here, primarily because I don't want to forget, is that when we look at, uh, when we look at people who are really being denied what would help them thrive, there's something there for... The, the skills and the tools that are required to actually address that are not skills and tools that just support the people who are um, causing harm. 
because in many ways they are victims as well. This relationship between the person causing harm and the person who's the victim, if you want to use that kind of language. Um, When we actually address what is at the root of these challenges, the skills that we actually end up learning are going to support us in being better human beings across the board in our lifetime. For example, let's just say that I learned how to face my fears. And I have to, as a person who's committed a crime, I have to understand why I committed that crime. Maybe I'm in a circle, maybe I'm in a program that's been adjudicated from the courts and I end up not having to go to prison. At some point, I have to understand what caused me to do whatever it is that I did. As I'm learning that, as I'm understanding that, oftentimes what will happen is that I become aware of the places where I did not receive what I needed. So that's that crossover line between uh, victim and abuser. A mirror you could hold mm-hmm. up to, to, to both of those uh, positions that a person finds themselves in. When we do learn how to face our fear, when we do learn how to forgive, when we do learn what it means to um, invite people to step into their greatness, we're doing that for ourselves as well. And so there's something tremendous to be gained by really looking at the relationships between the people we might refer to as the problem people and the people who are uh, uh, fall prey to that kind of um, uh, damage, that we have something in common and we need to find out what those things are and we need to address them together. Uh, We're going to have more on that subject than we can get in before this break that's coming up. But uh, Mm -hmm. what it made me think of is, um, you know, I've I've interviewed quite a number of people who have been on the um, quote-unquote victim side. Uh, You know, someone Mm -hmm. they, they loved was murdered or some other form of damage. And uh, obviously they are people who um, grieved, (laughs) you know, that's, that's Mm -hmm. obvious, but none of them could quite um, all together go forward until they came to terms. Most of them ended up meeting and some working with whoever had um, committed the crime. And there's some way that they, to a person, um, felt that that was a very important part of their own healing. Um, right. You know, we tend yes. to look at it, or it tends to be talked about in the news as one or the other. But uh, when we come back, I'd really lo- like to talk about more about how it's both, because uh, yes. I think okay. that, that's just vital a vital piece for people to understand. Um, during yes. the break, you can go find both of us. You can find me at weatheringgrief.com. My my uh, website or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Dr. Shakti Butler and World Trust, go to www.world-trust.org. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now. To showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event, visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Shakti Butler, founder of World Trust and filmmaker about her film we've been talking about her film healing justice and shakti in this last segment i i would like to obviously this is going to be a uh, a small introduction to a very big subject but i'd like to give my listeners a sense of the alternatives um you know what happens when there is some access to the kind of healing that you're talking about and the kind of support mm-hmm. and attention that you're talking about on both sides of the equation. Cause I think, um, you know, I think uh, it, it also leaves uh, quote unquote victims of crime with something unhealed. Um, yes. 
as well that this is the system mm-hmm. we're in. Could, could you talk some mm-hmm. about that? Sure. Um, there are like thousands and thousands of stories where people have either participated in restorative justice circles and or have had a chance to actually talk to the people with whom they have, um, um, who, who they have harmed in some way. And what, what people don't really understand is that given the way our current court system operates, um, typically the person who's been harmed and the person who's committed the harm don't really have an opportunity to talk to each other. So let's just assume, you know, um, that this person who has been harmed um, really gets what they want in terms of the kind of penalty that's meted out against the person who has caused this, this, you know, harm in their lives. They go home and they're still not healed. They're still not happy. They're not satisfied with the fact that this person got a life sentence or whatever the sentence may be. What they really want to know is, why did this person do this? Were they staking out my house? Was it something about me? There are like uh, so many questions that people have about how the whole event took place. When there is a chance for that person who has been harmed to actually understand the dynamics that took place that caused the harm, and a relationship happens to, I shouldn't say happen because it doesn't just happen, it takes a tremendous amount of work. But there's a relationship that's formed even between people who have um, killed someone. That relationship can also be very, very, uh, not only healing, but extremely intimate. Because there's some place at some point where they see themselves in one another. And that is a mystery that is very difficult for me to explain um, on, a, on a talk show like this. Um, but it is the process of forgiveness at work. Forgiveness is, of course, always about being able to forgive. It's, it's, it's as much for the person who's doing the forgiving as the person who's being forgiven. And Maybe more. when you see this happen, <laughs> I'm sorry? Yes. Maybe even more. You know, maybe even more. Think of forgiveness when you see it happen over and again, ourselves. it's amazing. Yeah. You're yes, making I'm me sorry. think of a guest I had. Her name is uh, Margot Van Sleutman. She's Canadian, mm-hmm. and she runs an organization called Saubana. Um, yes. And um, she met the person who murdered her father years later. Mm-hmm. And they formed such a deep connection that um, he was eventually paroled and they worked together. They started a a system of gardens across Canada where, um, uh, I I hate the word victims, but that's the word, (laughs) I guess, Um, Mm -hmm. victims and people who've committed crime garden together. Um, And Sabana uh, means the light in me sees the light in you. So it's just what you're talking about. Um, Kind of to get down to that essential human quality and um, be able to connect at that level, even if you completely disagree on many things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, it's interesting because the film really does ask what is justice. There are three components to healing justice. The first is looking at this intergenerational trauma The second is looking at, you know, what is justice? And the third is really all about healing. 
And the what is justice question, if you sit down and you talk to someone and you say, well, give me your description of justice, it's rarely the kind of description that we're actually discussing here, which is how do you mend what's broken? How do you make it whole? Because it's only out of that wholeness that more good things can follow. If the brokenness is what remains, then brokenness will follow. And um, this is something that's been true for indigenous cultures all over the world, that there's a real understanding that mending must take place. What, uh, something that's coming to my mind right now is is one of the programs you talked about in the film, uh, the... the um, person, I guess the CEO of it, uh, was naming some statistics when when uh, juvenile offenders um, get put into that program, um, the chances that they'll recommit a crime just went down so, 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 so dramatically. I yes. think she said yes. 11% instead of 90, you know, and, and I'm thinking... So we ought to be able to get people on board with just the, just the um, effectiveness, you know. Um, but I think that right. that so many people have we've been trained to a punishment orientation. It's very hard uh-huh. to get people to actually listen. That hey, this this other thing works so much better. Yes, and the other part of that is that um, people who who. Um, were the people who were harmed asked if they would like to go through this kind of program if they, by some chance, were, um, you know, fell prey to another crime, um, said that they much prefer this system of um, restorative justice, of mending the bridges, mending, understanding the harm that was done, and actually having people become whole. Uh, I think that's something we want in our society as a whole. Um, is that we want yes. to have people be able to be their best selves and to deal with the more pressing social problems that exist all over the globe rather than taking people who are have a lot to offer. Not, not everybody has a lot to offer, depending upon how you're looking at that. But <laughs> people, have, people who have suffered, people who have been marginalized, are experts in the field of what they actually need in order to feel like they belong. And we don't draw on that at all. We go into 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 uh, communities and we tell people what they need to do in order to be better, but we don't include them in the process of being um, able to create the kind of programs that are going to actually work for them. I'm thinking about two things from your film. One is the, the young man who uh, killed someone, was in prison. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name at the moment, but yeah. um, eventually went through this process, eventually came out, and and now does that work himself. He, he moved me so yeah. much. Um, yes. Because, and, yeah. and just the way you're saying that he he came to such a deep understanding of what had led to that place and such a deep commitment to... Um, giving back. Yes, and he is—he um, is a person who I trust uh, from the bottom of my being. He is generous. He is kind. He is thoughtful, and he works with young people and gives back to his community and um, is a model citizen. 
And so, so much more beneficial than someone who just, you know, is in prison, um, not having an opportunity to give back to society. I also loved the story about, uh, I guess, a, a young person had stolen a car. Uh, yes. Can you tell that story? Because I think that <laughs> to, to get people on board, we have to kind of see it, see how it works in practice. That worked so well in practice. Yes. We just have a couple of minutes yes. left, but it feels like maybe a place to, yes. to wrap up. Um, he was a young man. Yes, he had stolen the car of someone who worked for the police department, and she was not at all happy about going through this process of adjudicating the case. And so when you're doing that, you have to meet, and a plan needs to be made that is very specific, um, has goals, has ways that you're going to accomplish it. And it was all about, well, how is this young man going to make restitution to this woman for her car? And um, he said, you know, he was asked, well, is there anything that you'd like to do that you're good at? And And his whole face lit up, and he said, well, I'm an artist. And his mother said to him, well, you can't pay this woman back $4,000, you know, to fix her car. And the woman said at that point, oh, yes, he can. If he can paint me a Tinkerbell on my wall that's as big as whatever the dimensions were that she gave, I will forgive the debt. And so there's a picture in the film of this young man painting this Tinkerbell, which is huge on her wall. But if that's what keeps him out of trouble, if that's what gives him a sense of the fact that his talents are really, you know, they're worthwhile and worthy and can, and can help him do well in the world and he doesn't go back to jail, well, you know, then we should all be happy about Tinkerbell. And and it was a beautiful Tinkerbell, by the way. It was a beautiful <laughs> also, Tinkerbell. It was really- but also <laughs> um, beautiful for her as well because that she came up with that, so that did yes. something for her. You know, that's right. Uh, her her she, heart she, softened for sure. Her heart softened. She said, "Wait, there's something. We can work this out." And I I was very. Yeah. Touched by that simple example, I think it really um, gives us a start on on how uh, obviously less complicated than other situations, but I think it roughly works that way. What is it that needs mm-hmm. to happen? Yes? Mm-hmm. We need to build relationships with one another. You know, mm-hmm. we live in a society that's very much about individualism, and when we find a way to build relationships with people across our differences and actually celebrate the places where we can love each other, where we can create communities of belonging, where people are able to uh, determine the ways that they want to live their lives and be in community, then everybody wins. Everybody wins. Thank you. I, I, an hour was not nearly long enough. I really appreciate our time together. <laughs> well, thank Next, you, Cheryl. Thank oh, you're you welcome. Much. Next week, I'll have Charles Fontenot. We'll be talking about how writing poetry helped him heal after the death from cancer of his 21-year-old son. This has been Good Grief oh for Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.